Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, this is Lenny Goldberg, and as you probably know, this past Shabbat and Friday night, an Arab shot and killed seven Jews, wounded at least three others in the Neve Yaakov neighborhood as they were coming out of their shul. It was near a synagogue in Neve Yaakov. And the media reports that celebrations were held all over Israel and all the Arab cities and villages following the deadly attack. The father of the terrorist, he said he was filled with joy like on his wedding day. And the mother, she was giving out candy to her neighbors. It was all out there on social media for your viewing pleasure. So after Jews are murdered, the Arabs in Israel, they spontaneously break into celebration. That's what they do. The same thing happened a couple of weeks ago when an Israeli Arab, his name was Karen Yunus, he was released after 40 years behind bars. He was the longest serving terrorist in Israel. What did this Karim Yunus do? Well, in 1980, Yunus and his cousin, they left their Arab village called Ara. It's a city in the north of Israel. And they went out to murder a Jew. And they did it by offering a soldier a ride. And the Jewish soldier, his name was Avraham Bromberg. He was heading from his army base in the Golan Heights. He was heading home. He entered their car. There was a struggle. They overpowered him and they shot him in the head. They stole his weapon and they left him on the side of the road where he was found, brought to a hospital, but he died days later. That's what Karim Yunus, Yamach Shemo, from the city of Ara, that's what he did. And the killers were arrested two years later and they were sentenced in 1983. So what was newsworthy about this? Well, Karim Yunus, the Arab murderer with his black and white kafir wrapped around his shoulders, he's now 64 years old. He was released to his home, to the Arab town of Ara, with thousands of supporters singing the Palestinian national anthem, came out to greet him and throw him a big party. And when this happened a couple of weeks ago, it was all over Israeli TV. Videos were pasted on social media showing Yunus being warmly greeted. He's giving interviews. He's saying stuff like, 40 years have passed as if they were nothing. We consider this to be one of the main pillars of the struggle. And he's saying this while he's being carried around through the streets, waving a Palestinian flag. Karim Yunus from the city of Ara. So you see the jubilant homecoming of this terrorist. And you see the Arabs in Israel spontaneously celebrating the murder of these Jews on Friday night while they're coming out of a synagogue in Eveyakov. And you want to know, what does Judaism think about this? I'm not talking about the slimy terrorist himself. I'm talking about all those Arabs from the city of Ara who came out to greet him and gave him that jubilant homecoming. What does Judaism say about them? What does the Torah have to say about the father of the murderer, this Peshabbat, who was so happy, and the mother who was distributing candy? And the Arabs of Gaza and all over Israel who rejoice this weekend for the murder of Jews. What does Judaism say about them? Is there a concept of collective punishment that can be applied here? Well, if you want to know what Judaism says, you look at the Torah and you look at last week's Pasha, Pasha at Bo, where you see a lot of collective punishment. I mean, the Egyptians are getting it from all sides. They're all being smitten by the plagues. The entire population, not just the bad guys, are being smitten by these plagues in Egypt. And then we have a verse like this. On the verse of the slaying of the firstborn, it says like this. And the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne 
to the firstborn of the prisoner that was sitting in the dungeon. So the sages ask, the prisoner who was sitting in the dungeon, what was his sin? Why was the firstborn prisoner also smitten? After all, they're captives in Egypt. They're suffering too. Why should the firstborn in the dungeon also get whacked? And our sages give the answer in Bidrash Tanhuma Pashat Bo. Because they were happy with all the decrees which Pharaoh decreed on Israel. And they bring a verse in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5. Hasamech laid lo yinakeh. Meaning, he was happy about the calamity, he shall not go unpunished. So we see here clearly that the Torah mandates collective punishment against an entire people because they support the bad guy, because they support that terrorist. They themselves might not have the courage, so to speak, to rise up and kill a Jew, but they sure are happy when one of their guys do it. They're rooting for him. The sages teach us here in this Midrash, Midrash Tanchuma, what's the Jewish idea concerning a nation which as a whole harms the Jewish people. Not only are the specific individuals who actively take part in the terrorizing of the Jews are punished, but the entire nation from big to little, they're also punished. Why? Because they're happy about it. That's what it says in Midrash Tanchuma, because they were happy with all the decrees which power decreed upon Israel. So if you take that saying of our sages and apply it to our situation, you say, so why does the city of Ara deserve to be punished? Because they were happy with their boy Eunice who killed a Jew. They're happy with their countrymen are doing. They identify with them. They're on their side. That's enough to be guilty. Now, this isn't just an idea. This concept is codified into the halacha. And you can contact me and I'll give you the sources. This isn't the place to... Bring down the halachas in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Rambam. But the Midrash I mentioned, the Midrash Tanchuma, explains the reasoning behind the halacha. When a nation fights us, there are no innocents. There are some who fight in the front, and there are some who fight in the back. And they're all partners. In what way? The very fact that their hearts rejoice when Jews are killed or maimed, that's enough for them to be halachically considered as soldiers fighting in the front lines. So when you see the Arabs distributing candy after a terror attack, and if there was ever a nation who's mobilized man, woman, and child against the Jewish people and the Jewish state, it's the Arab population in Israel. It's so obvious. Because with every terror attack, you see this spontaneous and mass rejoicing. You see that just erupt amongst the Arab population in Israel. And when you see those dancings and the celebrations of the Arabs on the rooftops of their houses after a terror attack, don't the words of our sages just ring a bell? Especially if we alter the style just a bit because they were happy with all the bombs that Arabs planted against Israel. And what I'm saying here is just normal. When a terrorist attacks Jews and it's viewed as a patriotic act of the first order by his people, obviously there's no room for pity, not even on the so-called innocent ones. That's the kind of mercy which leads to cruelty. And so know that in Judaism, there is no such thing as purity of arms, tohara neshek as they call it. We brag that our soldiers drop leaflets over Aza that's nothing to brag about. That's not the Jewish way. And I want to give a parallel to this to show how the very identifying with somebody makes you part of that. When somebody finishes a tractate of Talmud, he has a siyum. He has a little party to celebrate that he completed the tractate. And it's customary to invite people to his siyum, to his little party that he's having to celebrate his finishing of this tractate. And you know that those people who participate in the siyum where he reads the last few lines of Gomorrah there, 
those people are considered as they themselves finish the tractate. As a matter of fact, one can be dismissed from a fast because he attended a siyum. Let's say you have a bachor, a firstborn child in a family. Well, technically, he has to fast on the eve of Passover. So what does he do? If he's a firstborn male, that morning before he eats, he goes to shul and he attends a siyum. That is, somebody else is finishing his Gomorrah tractate. He's doing a party there. He himself didn't have to finish the tractate. But the very fact that he celebrated with the guy who actually finished the tractate, that makes him patur. He's dismissed now from a fast. Why? Because they identify with the person who finished his tractate of Gomorrah. They're happy for him. So they themselves get the credit as if they also finished a tractate of Talmud. And so you see the parallel. And we could just give examples of collective punishment all over the Bible. Every page of the book of Joshua is a lesson in collective punishment. The whole idea of wiping out Amalek, that whole concept, is the pinnacle of collective punishment. To wipe out man, women, suckling, donkey, everything. So of course there's a concept of collective punishment in Judaism. Now this shouldn't be a truth bomb I'm dropping here. This is just being normal. When the United States bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they didn't just kill kamikazes. When the Allied bombers bombed Dresden, they weren't just bombing Nazi soldiers, but it was a war against the people. They had to break the spirit of the people who supported those Nazis, who identified with them, who were rooting for them. If you're rooting for the enemy, that's enough to make you an enemy. You're rooting for him. You are part and parcel to the terror. And so these aren't really truth bombs. They're more like shockwaves that we've become so lobotomized and desensitized and so removed from basic Judaism and normalcy that I have to say things that are so obvious, kind of like giving somebody an electric shock to wake them up from his lobotomy. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention right off the bat, because basic Jewish values has become so distorted and so perverted that when you say something that's so obviously and so true, it seems to people, oh, that's so extreme. It's not extreme. Just watch the Arabs celebrating. Listen to the father of that terrorist. What more do you have to witness in order to understand the words of our sages when they say, why were the Egyptians punished, the ones that were in the dungeon? Because they were happy with all the decrees that Paro decreed. He who rejoices over the tragedy should not go unpunished. I want to talk about something else that's directly related to the murder of Jews in our land. And it's the highlight of the Parshat Shavuot that we read, Parshat Bo, where the Jewish people, before the exodus from Egypt, are given a commandment. And it says like this, on the 10th of the month, that is the month of Nisan, they shall take to them every man a lamb. You got to take a lamb. And you have to bind up that lamb for four days. Now the lamb was the very God of Egypt. It was a deity, a hallowed creature before whom the Egyptian bows and he would dare not touch the meat of the lamb. And now the Jews are commanded to take this lamb, this Egyptian God, the deity of their masters and tie it to their bedposts. And the outraged Egyptian masters, they would ask, what are you doing? And the Jews would tell them, we're going to slaughter this lamb real soon. We're going to slaughter this lamb, your God, and we're going to eat it. This was obviously a very difficult mitzvah. Every Shabbat before Passover, we have the we have something called the Shabbat HaGadol, the Great Sabbath, to commemorate this. And it's the highlight of our Pasha. And basically what we're doing here is we're provoking the Goyim. We're adding salt to the wound. They've already been delivered like nine plagues already. 
and they're beaten up, but it's not enough. This is going to be the final nail in the coffin, this Paschal lamb offering. And the verse is like this, you shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, eat it, not partially cooked, not boiled in water, but roasted with fire, its head with its legs and with its insides complete. So the verse is telling us here that the lamb is slaughtered and roasted whole, fully and openly. It cannot be hastily covered in a pot where you can't see it. Its identity can't be disguised by cutting it into pieces. That's why it says not boiled in water. It has to be like a real shish kebab. It has to be roasted like a shawarma that's on a skewer. So what is this misfer about anyway? Well, like we said, the devastation of Egypt via the plagues, it was to show the awesome power of Hashem, to show Paro and the Jewish people and the Egyptians that the God of Israel indeed exists. It was a Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name. After the heavy pounding the Egyptians suffered, it was impossible to deny the omnipotence of the Hebrew God. But in order for the sanctification to be complete, something else had to be done. And that's the offering of this Paschal Lamb. You see, there's a need to humiliate the Egyptians, to humiliate their religion, to make a mockery of their religion. Because for the sanctification of God's name to be complete, there's no room for coexistence with another God. If Hashem is one, there can be no other. That's the idea of the Paschal Lamb. Because after all the plagues, the Egyptians could still say, wow, that God of Israel is working overtime. He's really good. But that doesn't nullify their God or their religion. We have to show there is no other God. There's only Hashem. So what do you have to do? You have to take their deity and humiliate it and slaughter it so they realize it's not just a matter of the God of Israel is a good God. He's the only God. This is not religious tolerance, but it is the entire idea of Passover, the holiday that we celebrate. It's the idea behind the Passover sacrifice, taking the deity of the Egyptians and shechting it. Because if God is one, as we say in our prayers, Hashem Lokein Hashem Echad, there can be no other. So you have to show there is no other by humiliating their deity. Now I bring this up because we're in a religious war with the Arabs today. It's not an Israeli-Arab struggle. It's not a Jewish-Arab struggle. It's a struggle of Judaism versus Islam. The Arabs, of course, know this. And that's why they get their motivation to slaughter Jews from the mosques. It's the religion of Islam which drives them to unleash their terror. And that's why they build a mosque on every holy site there is in the land of Israel, including the Temple Mount where they built their mosque. For them, it's a religious struggle. That's why when they kill a Jew, they yell, Allah Akbar, Allah is great. That's why they invoke the name of Allah in everything they do. That's why they go crazy on anything connected to the Temple Mount. Unfortunately, the Jew, he sees events through secular and pragmatic glasses only. He doesn't realize that a stone thrown at a Jew is a stone thrown at the God of Israel. And the murder of Jews in the streets of Jerusalem leaving Shul is a chilul Hashem. And that any concession of any part of the land of Israel is a declaration to the Muslims that our God is, God forbid, weak. We can't hold on to the land because Hashem's not strong enough. That's how it's interpreted. And that's why the Arabs will go crazy if you desecrate their Muhammad but Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name, can't be complete unless all the false gods are destroyed. We have in Israel a ministry called the Misrata Datot, the ministry of religions. Religions? There's only one true religion, and that's Judaism. And that's what the mitzvah of the Paschal Lamb is all about. There is one God, and there is no other. And so if we expect to win this war against the Arabs, it's only if we understand the significance of the struggle 
That is Judaism versus Islam. What's the truth, the Torah or the Quran? Okay, let's move on. You know, I don't have a television at home, so I rarely see the mainstream Israeli TV news. But I was at my mother-in-law's the other day, and she's got a TV, and I'm watching the news on TV. And you know, it's the channel that your average Israeli watches. It's what he relies on for his news. Like compare it to Americans tuning into CNN or MSNBC. And so I'm watching from the beginning. And of course, the very first story, it's about the protests in the streets and demonstrations against the new government and its judicial reforms. As you know, the new government is trying to weaken the power of the Supreme Court, who have this habit of overturning governmental decisions. Anyway, watching the Israeli TV news here really makes it seem like there's a revolution sweeping Israel against this new government. I'm telling you, the first 20 minutes of the news was just about the veracity of the protests. They're interviewing the demonstrators. They make it really look like a groundswell against this government, like a massive uprising. The fact is, the numbers at these rallies, they're not that much bigger than any other rallies. 80,000, 70,000. I mean, a lot more came out for Oslo. And a lot more than that turned out to stop the withdrawal from the Golan Heights. And remember what Yitzchak Rabin said in those days? He said about his opponents who uh, were demonstrating, let them spin like propellers. So that's what we say. Let them spin around like propellers. And the funny thing is, if you look at the signs and look at what they say, they're talking about how the judicial overhaul, it's a danger to democracy. Now listen to their democracy. The Attorney General, Gali Baran Miara, she is considering declaring Netanyahu unfit to serve. So think about that one. The Attorney General, who's part of the judicial system, separated from the elected government, she's declaring that the elected PM is unfit. So the unelected are declaring that the elected officials are unfit. Can you imagine an Attorney General, part of the judicial system, separate from the elected government, declaring that the elected PM is unfit? saying that the elections are null and void? If that's not judicial tyranny, then what is? But what the left is doing is they're going international. You know, they're trying to persuade leftists in Europe and America to join their cause to save democracy. So one of the things they do is they turn to their buddy, Thomas Friedman, the columnist of the New York Times, and he writes a column condemning Israel and the new government. And Thomas Friedman suggests that Biden weigh in on Israel's eternal crisis. He wants Biden to, to save Israel from their current leadership, which he calls ultra-Orthodox and ultra-nationalist. So he's a special pleader for the Israeli left, and he's asking Biden to put the screws to Israel. They even got Alan Dershowitz on board, and Dershowitz is saying that Netanyahu's judicial overhaul, it's a terrible mistake. You know, I hate to say this about Dershowitz because sometimes he is on the right side of the issues. I think he's an attention whore. He just loves to weigh in on every issue. And I know he's uh, widely respected and all, but I just have the feeling about him that he's an arrogant, know-it-all attention seeker. Anyway, who cares what Dershowitz says? And so the leftists in Israel are turning to those Jews in the United States to be special pleaders for them, to pressure Netanyahu, to sick Biden on Netanyahu. That's what they're doing now. They're going international. And this has been going on forever where Jewish leaders in Israel and the world, they warn us that the Jewish state risks standing without allies, that if Israel takes extreme and provocative action, that they're prepared to do the difficult things that they have to do to survive, okay, like take care of the Arabs, like overhaul the judiciary. Oh, if they do that, they face the hazard of standing alone 
against the hostile world. That's the threat they always have. They're holding over our heads. So what they're saying all the time is that should the state of Israel do what is necessary to survive, that is take steps that go against the basic grain of liberal Western democratic views, then it risks splitting a large part of the United States Jewish community. And they do this all the time. They're so uncomfortable when the Jewish state takes bold steps that it has to take. Now, just going back to the relationship between the Jews and the diaspora and how they think about Israel, you know, after the Holocaust, everybody loved the Jewish state. It was impossible for any Jew not to really love Israel and they would never condemn Israel. Because after the Holocaust, everybody knew that Israel is a haven for Jews. It's a haven for future terrors that can happen. But that attitude of loving Israel and being sympathetic towards Israel, it started to change. Because even those American Jews who loved Israel back then and wouldn't criticize it, there was still this built-in contradiction within the Jewish establishment leadership and within the intellectual community. While they supported Israel, oh, we love Israel, but they were essentially products of non-Jewish Western culture and values. First and foremost, they're liberals before they're Jews. That's what the average secular Jew is. His religion is he's a Democrat. He's a liberal. That's what he is first and foremost. So even when they supported Israel back then, it was according to their standards how they judge morality in their liberal mindset. And so if you take the first 20 years of the state, there were very few abrasive moments uh, between the Jewish establishment and Israel. They didn't condemn policy, but then something changed. The Jews won the Six-Day War in 1967 and Judea and Samaria and the Golan Heights, they were now in our hands. The biblical lands were restored to us. Suddenly, we started to win. We were winners. Instead of being Holocaust survivors, we were now proud conquerors. And then the euphoria wore off. Why? Because we started to win. The liberal Jews, with their psychological inability to be winners, that is, they are only comfortable with the Holocaust, where the Jews get beat up. They can't handle it when Jews kick butt. You know, somehow it's better to be this lovable loser. Well, they began to squirm over the occupied territories, the use of force by Jews against civilians and women and children. You see, that was all new after 67. Before 67, there were no disputed territories. There was no what you call politics involved. But after 67, oh, now you have controversy. Then you start to hear in Jewish circles about Israel's unwillingness to compromise and the poor Palestinian refugees and the moderate Palestinians and all that. All these subjects started to come up and the liberals will always side with the poor Nebuch. So they started to condemn Israel more and more because we didn't fit the bill of this nice liberal westernized state that they want to believe in. And this new government with its ultra-Orthodox, ultra-nationalist component to it, this isn't the Israel they want to believe in. It doesn't fit their bill. And so with all this in mind, it's got to be made clear to the U.S. Jews that the state of Israel can't allow itself even under the worst of possible threats to be influenced by American Jews when it's security, not to mention survival is at stake. That's got to be the basic axiom. There's no amount of pressure and no amount of loss of money or support. And that's what they threaten, to withdraw money and support. There's no amount that can sway Israel in the slightest from carrying out policies that are necessary for survival, no matter how much the American Jews object to it. And most important of all, the United States Jews need Israel a lot more than Israel needs them. And despite the horrendous terror attacks we see in our country, 
the future of the Jews in the land of Israel is a lot rosier than the future of the Jews in the exile, in any exile. There is no exile that didn't end badly. And it would be flying in the face of a historical precedent to say that it can't happen in America. It always happened in the exile, in the Gullus. And I'm not going to say the word diaspora. That is a mealy-mouthed word. What the heck is the diaspora anyway? Anyway, my rant is done. Don't forget to tune in to Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes if you want a really good study of Bible. Simple, to the point, from a totally authentic Jewish perspective. You got to tune into Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. It's on Anchor. It's on Spotify. We'll see you next week at the Jewish Truth Bomb. you get the inside news on Israel. At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from Leak City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Doris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 